to go, the Sunday Times newspaper carried a sobering story. It concerned a highly successful businessman, in fact the CEO of one of America's largest companies. The story was that at the age of 53, Eugene O'Kelly discovered that he had brain cancer and only three months to live. It was a great shock, of course, and it caused a major rethink in his priorities. Gave up his job, devoting his remaining time to be with family and friends. During his last months, he sought to find appropriate moments and means of saying goodbye to them. The last conversations are recorded in his memoirs just released. The book is called Closing the Circle. One of the extracts I found particularly striking was a conversation between Mr. O'Kelly and his brother. Apparently his brother was furious that his sibling should be suffering like this. In the prime of his life with a loving family around him, a very successful career. Why him? Your anger won't do any good, I said. I told him to take the energy he was spending on being angry at the world, double it and channel it into love for his children. He promised he would. Now, as I read that account, I couldn't help but relate it to compare it and contrast it with another conversation. What we have been considering over these last weeks in John's Gospel. For as we have seen in John chapter 14 and 15, when Jesus engages in this lengthy dialogue with his fraught disciples, that the Lord Jesus Christ is closing the circle with them. In fact, this is his last word, the last significant teaching for these grief-filled disciples. Grief caused by Jesus' words, for he has said that he is leaving them. And grief confirmed by the fact that these earlier inquisitive disciples are now silent. You notice that the questions now fall out of the narrative. They're overwhelmed. And we wonder, what will Jesus say to them? What counsel will this loving elderly brother give to these troubled brothers? Well, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, go and make the most of it. You need to pull yourselves together. And by your own self-determination, somehow make a positive out of another wise negative scenario. Jesus says nothing about self-reliance. What he speaks a great deal about, what he highlights and explains, is another kind of reliance, namely, spirit reliance. When I go, he says, it won't simply be a case of over to you now. But when the Spirit comes, He will help you in the world where you witness and in the Word 
as you come to later recall and record it. In short, it will be for your good that I am leaving. And if we are part of the body of Christ today, we must understand that this is also for our good as well. It is for our benefit that Jesus today has gone to heaven and sent his spirit into the world. It's not the case, as is sometimes thought, that it would be better to live during the time when Jesus walked this earth. Not so, says Jesus. The most fruitful time is this period of aftermath, after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. When Jesus is reigning from his throne in heaven, but when his spirit has been sent into the world to help the church. And therefore, if we are to live effectively, fruitfully during this time, then we must understand the role of the Holy Spirit. It is imperative. And this is why Jesus gives this vital teaching on the Holy Spirit. So that we might know in specific terms how we can rely on him rather than run on the fumes of self-reliance. Now, in doing so, Jesus describes two essential ministries of the Spirit. A pair of related and complementary and expedient ministries for the sake of the church. In the first place, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of guilt. That's what he says in verse 8, if you have your Bible open before you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So that the first ministry of the Holy Spirit is a convicting ministry. You may recall that earlier in Jesus' teaching... This counselor was described in terms of being a defense attorney. Now Jesus describes the spirit as a prosecution attorney. The spirit's job is to expose the sin of individuals. To reveal, not to a jury or to a judge, but to them, their guilt before God. And we recall that during his own ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ frequently exposed the guilt of the world. This was a ministry that Jesus performed while he was on earth. There was no hiding place for religious veneer or hypocrisy. But now that Jesus is leaving the world, the Holy Spirit will come to continue this ministry. In fact, we might say that in some Aspects He will do so more pervasively than even the Lord Jesus did. Because when Jesus was on earth, by reason of his full humanity, he could only bring conviction to particular people in particular places at particular times. But when the Spirit comes, says Jesus, he will bring conviction to the world. First of all, he will bring conviction, as we were hearing, about sin. In regard to sin, verse 9, because men do not believe in me. Now, that sounds like a strange definition of sin, doesn't it? Because men do not believe in me. 
Why, we usually think of wickedness in terms of murder or theft or something of that nature. But Jesus says the very heart of sin is the rejection of all that I am and all that I stand for. The Spirit's ministry will expose the guilt of this sin specifically. You know, I don't know much about the whole world of the law courts, but I do know that it's sometimes common for attorneys to focus just on one or two charges, rather than perhaps all the various charges they could bring to bear. And it seems that this is what Jesus is saying, that even this sin alone would be enough to condemn the world. Why, you remember, he said as much earlier in John's Gospel, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It is the one fatal flaw that each of us shares. You know, when NASA first built the uh, Hubble telescope, they finally launched it into space at the cost of one and a half billion dollars. And when they finally got it into orbit and pointed it in the right direction, they couldn't see a thing. Do you know what the grand problem was? One small but fatal flaw had ruined the whole. And the Spirit will show that even if we were perfect in every other way, we would be guilty of this central sin. And the Spirit will convict us of something else, what Jesus calls righteousness. In regard to righteousness, verse 10, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Now, this could be speaking about human righteousness. In other words, it would be speaking of the inadequate righteousness of human beings. However, Jesus has just talked about sin in the previous Word. So, it doesn't seem like this is what Jesus is talking about. It seems more likely that Jesus is speaking about the righteousness of God, which brings our righteousness, or lack of it, into sharp relief. Righteousness describes the moral perfection of God, the rightness of all His ways. And it is only, friends, when we see the beauty of God's righteousness, that we really see how ugly our lives are. John Calvin, the great reformer, captured it well. He said, so long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness. We address ourselves in the most flattering of terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God, and reflect how absolute the perfection of that righteousness, to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted by the greatest iniquity. And it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to persuade us of that distinction, so that we might become convinced, too, of judgment. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Verse 11. Again, this sounds a little unusual to our ears. 
Uh, Judgment we understand. That's God's final reckoning with sin and those who persist in unbelief. And yet Jesus says that the Spirit of God will make this future reality of judgment clear to people now. But the reason seems strange. The prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, what is Jesus driving at in this verse? Of course, the prince of this world, we know, is Satan, the devil. Satan is the figurehead of all who reject God and rebel against God's Son. And Jesus says that the prince of this world now stands condemned. The key word seems to be the now word. In other words, Jesus is pointing to what is about to happen now, namely the cross. And he's saying that Satan will be condemned at the cross. What may seem to the naked eye, like Satan's greatest triumph, will in fact be the beginning of the end for him. And yet when we think about it, something logically follows. Someone put it like this. If Jesus Christ can judge the greatest sinner in the universe, he can and will judge unbelievers. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of the boy David who felled the giant Goliath? What happened in that story? When Goliath was felled, the whole Philistine army knew that their defeat was certain too. And the Spirit will convince us that Satan's defeat at Calvary will confirm our ultimate destruction if we persist in unbelief as the foot soldiers of Satan. See, the Holy Spirit is in the business of conviction. And his specific target is the world. Now, if you've been following this to this point, maybe you're asking a logical question then. Because didn't we say that this ministry would be for the benefit of the church? It's interesting that till this point in John's Gospel, whenever the Spirit has been mentioned, he has been spoken of in relation to the church, ministering to the church. So how is this ministry to the world? For the church is good. And therefore we need to remember that Jesus has recently commissioned his disciples. Jesus said to them in John fifteen sixteen, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then he added, and you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. They have been commissioned to herald the good news about Jesus after his death. And yet they must have wondered to themselves, how on earth are we going to do it? Who will ever believe us? Why would those who rejected the Lord Jesus in all his wisdom and all his truth and all his glory believe faltering, failing disciples? Surely we can't convince anyone And Jesus agrees with them. But he says, the Spirit can and will convince them. The Spirit will minister not to the church, but through the church 
to the world. And this is a crucial thing we must learn. Whether personally, if we are unbelieving, rejecting God's Son, pushing Him away, or interpersonally, if we're thinking about our non-Christian friends and those that we would like to see come to salvation. Illumination will not come to an unbelieving person simply through their reasoning skills and your persuading skills. It will not happen due to their deductive skills or simply your oratorical skills. Conviction is the sovereign ministry of the Holy Spirit. And even right now, that's why the Spirit may be bringing conviction to bear on you this morning. As you're sitting under the Word of God. Perhaps it's a painful experience. But if that's you, then let me encourage you this morning. The reason that the Spirit convicts you of guilt is so that He might point you to Christ's grace. See, it's only once we understand the veneer of our morality that that is what it is. That our best attempts are nothing better than glossing over dry rot. That we, at that point of desperation, become dependent. And we look to the cross where Jesus died and we say, Lord, I believe you. Jesus, forgive my unbelief. Only you can forgive me of my guilt. Save me from judgment. And that's when you become a Christian. That's when there is now no condemnation. Because you're in Christ. And you know, it's the most powerful, wonderful thing to see that happen in an individual's life. In the life of a church. In a whole community. Have you read some of the accounts of revival? In this country, overseas. Do you know what one of the sure marks of revival is? It is a deep conviction of sin. You know, I used to think that it would be fun to be caught up in a revival. That was before I read about it. Do we think revivals are full of laughter? They begin and usually continue with weeping. People overwhelmed by the fact of their own sin and God's infinite purity. We were preaching this morning during a revival period. You wouldn't be hearing me very well over the sobbing. But what I'm wondering today is this. Do we have confidence in the convincer today? It is one thing to read about it. It is... One thing to nod our heads in agreement about this. But it is quite another thing to expect him. And it's a really subtle thing. Uh, You see, your answer to the question, do I have confidence in the Spirit, may actually be fairly little. And yet we may fail to realize that. For example, it may hide under the guise of low self-confidence. So we say, I'm not an evangelist. Uh, No one would ever believe my testimony. Uh, I couldn't convince anyone. But did anyone ever ask us to convince anybody? Maybe on the other hand, it's quite the opposite for you. Why, you're the get up and go type. 
You're constantly infused about evangelism. You can't understand why everyone else isn't as passionate as you. And yet there's a subtle danger for you too, perhaps. Maybe a deep, almost imperceptible belief that it is somehow your efforts and your enthusiastic words and your forwardness that does the business. Of course, there's a place for persuading people, for answering questions. But our arguments alone, our answers alone, our sermons alone, can't bring a single person to saving faith. If we think that, we're deluded at best. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of guilt. Now, vital as this ministry is, it is not the complete picture. For the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this way is necessarily complemented by a second ministry. What Jesus adds in verses 12 to 15, that when the Spirit comes, he will guide the disciples into truth. There's a rather famous story about the conversion of the early church father, Augustine. Uh, before he was a Christian, Augustine lived a pretty wild life. But the Spirit began to work in his life. Here's what he wrote in his confessions. I was weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart. See the conviction? When I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever having heard the like, so checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be none other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where I had laid the volume of the apostle. Augustine was reading Romans at the time. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No further would I read, nor did I need to, for instantly, at the end of the sentence, it seemed as if a light of serenity had infused my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Isn't that a beautiful illustration of how the Spirit of God works through the truth of God? The Spirit of God convinces through the truth of God's Word. See, ultimately, that's what these verses are about. Jesus says that the Spirit will not only help the disciples in the world, but in the Word. Of course, they need the Spirit to make their message effective. But they also need the Spirit to give them the message in the first place. So verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, this is not encyclopedic knowledge of each and every fact, but all the truth about Jesus. Because he goes on to say, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. It's a picture of an ambassador. He's saying that when I, King Jesus, leave the earth for heaven, I will send the Spirit 
with messages from the king. And therefore the Spirit's task is not to speak his own mind or to make a name for himself. His aim is to honor the one who sent him. Jesus says, as I came to represent the Father to the world, so I am sending the Spirit to represent me to you. It was, of course, absolutely necessary for the disciples that this happened. The grief of the disciples at this point made it hard for them to take on board what Jesus was saying in these chapters. From a human perspective, how would they remember all that Jesus had said and done over a three-year ministry? And how would they understand the significance of it? But the Spirit would assist them so that ultimately the good deposit, the New Testament, would be written down. Now, this is why we must tread a little carefully here as we think about how this applies to us today. Sinclair Ferguson is right when he warns us that immediate application of these words to the contemporary church, that's us, short-circuits their significance. See, maybe we've sat in Bible studies and we're struggling with some problem or another. And some well-meaning person says, why don't we pray? Let's ask for the help of the Spirit. Because didn't Jesus say that when the Spirit comes, he will guide us into all truth? Well, Jesus did say it. But he didn't say it to us. He said it specifically to the apostles. I mean, how could we be reminded of the things Jesus said in our presence? We weren't there. And we don't need to be guided into all truth to write down the New Testament record. It's already been done. Now, that said, we probably should pray for the Spirit's help in our Bible study. Of course, he is the Spirit of truth. It is his task, in accordance with his nature, to guide us to the truth, to steer us away from error. But the key point is this. The Spirit performed this ministry in the first century, so that in the 21st century, you and I might have a gospel to tell. If the Spirit hadn't reminded the disciples, we would have no New Testament, no John's Gospel, no passage to consider this morning. And the implication is also clear that we, therefore, should be people of the Word. We understand this is the way the Spirit works. And that the Spirit went to such great lengths to preserve the Word for us. And therefore, we do not think out of some super spiritual expectation that people won't need the truth to be rescued. That the Holy Spirit will somehow convict people in the abstract. You hear the off-quoted saying, don't you? Preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. Well, the sentiment's okay, we can agree with. It's an important reminder. We must live lives in accordance with what we say. But whatever you do, don't take the advice literally. We always have to use words. Gospel words, which the Spirit inspired. So that we don't wait for some lightning bolt to fall from heaven on our non-Christian friend or neighbor or family member. We don't hope for some vision in the night given by the Spirit. We put a gospel in their hands. We give them some Christian book to read. We invite them along to some 
meeting where they can hear Scripture explained. Someone was telling me that just the other week they gave their neighbor, who's not a Christian, a Christianity Explored book. Now, some of you invited friends along to Christianity Explored. They gave them the book. I thought this was great. The neighbor read the book in a day and gave it back to them. You know what they said? They said it's a great trailer for the big book. Interested to find out more. But what if that Christian had waited for their neighbor to have some dramatic encounter with the Spirit out of the blue? And you see, the question is, do we have the confidence that the Spirit not only convicts, but that he convicts through his word. See, we must understand and reckon with the Spirit of God on his own terms. He is a powerful individual, and Jesus explains his ministry so that we might rely on him aright. Now, it could be this morning that the Spirit's ministry that I've been describing is no theoretical thing for you. And the reason is that the Spirit has been ministering directly to you as the Word of God has been preached. He's been convicting your heart. He's been challenging your thinking. And it's as if you've seen the world clearly for the first time this morning. You've seen your heart as it actually is for the first time. You've understood who Jesus is for the first time. You're convicted. You need to respond to that. You need to turn from your sins. You need to leave your old way of life behind, as Augustine had to do that. And you need to trust in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can pay the price for your guilt and wipe the slate clean. Maybe this morning, you're a Christian. Today is a reminder that the Spirit of God wants to work through you. To your family, to your friends, through the word that you speak to them. And the question is, will you depend on self or on the Spirit? I trust we'll depend on the Spirit. And then expect what the Spirit of God might do through even us. Let us pray together.